Tom Panos, John McGrath, million dollar agent, and of course facilitated none other but Troy Malkin. How are you, Johnny? I'm very good. Hi, Troy. Hi, Tom. So another big week ahead of us, huh? No, it's a, it's, it's it's a great week, and uh, what's fresh in my mind, John, and I know we talk about real estate, all things on this podcast, but I've asked, I've had three people ask me about Shark Tank, about John McGrath and Shark Tank. He's obviously been getting a lot of TV air uh, leading up to it and the launch, and uh, both Troy and I were uh, fortunate enough la- late last year we actually did a podcast at Fox Studios where you were filming, and we yeah. were able to see. Uh, one of the sets. John, is it okay if we talk a little bit about Shark Tank? It's yeah, yeah. look, I hope it goes, with, and thanks um, for coming out that time, you guys. It was great to have you there, because it's one of those things that not many of us in this country get to actually go on the set of something being filmed. It's, it sort of doesn't happen that often, so I wanted you guys to come out and it worked for me. So that was good. Um, it, it's a phenomenal show. For those of you that haven't seen it yet or are not familiar with the format, it's been running in America for a few years. It's now one of their biggest shows. It gets 8 million viewers a week. Um, so it's a very serious show. By the and, same name there? It's yeah, Shark, Shark Tank. Tank. And in the UK, it was called Dragon's Den. Yeah. Then America took it. I think they've improved it. And then Australia's taken. And let's hope we've improved America too. So, And Barbara Corcoran, who you and I both yeah. know, started and ran one of the best real estate companies. She's one of the investors. So there's a bit of a connection there because I've known Barbara for a lot of so years. So for the listeners, John, explain the concept of Shark Tank. So the, the basic premise is there are five investors they call sharks. Um, we had about 100 pitches, um, P-I-T-C-H-E-S, people that wanted to get an investment in their business, sell part of their business and get an entrepreneur, investor, mentor um, onto their shareholding register. So um, each investor came out and, sorry, each entrepreneur came out and chatted for about five minutes on their business. They described it to us, gave us some key numbers. We could then drill down into whatever questions we wanted to ask. And some of them lasted for almost an hour and a half, and some of them were gone in 15 minutes. If we didn't think it was a good business proposition, we didn't need to ask them much. Sometimes it happened pretty quickly. I think the average one went for about 45, 50 minutes. And um, a number of them got investments, which was, was interesting. And, and it was our own money. It wasn't kind of monopoly money. It was real money. So and this is John McGrath and the other sharks saying, we like this, we've we got skin in the game, we'll, we'll back you. Correct. And in fact, Tom, some of them were fought over when... There was a, an entrepreneur that was really good there that we loved the business, then we would actually, almost like an auction in real estate parlance, we, we'd bid for their business. And uh, so that was an interesting dimension to it. So it was a lot of fun. And what I liked, other than hopefully it's very entertaining and people like it, because TV is predominantly about entertainment, I think it should be very instructional for business owners and salespeople out there watching it, because hopefully amongst the five sharks, as they interrogate the entrepreneurs, they ask them questions, they make comments about what they do and don't like about their businesses, there's some learning for everyone there. And I always like TV shows that entertain and educate at the same time. So uh, that's partly why I did it. I thought it'd be an interesting adventure in one's life and we don't last forever, so I thought it'd be good to do that. So John, a hundred people pitched to you an idea over a month or so. Yep. And um, I'm just curious. To me, it sounds like a little bit like you're a vendor and you're getting real estate agents coming over yeah. to do listing presentations. I know it's probably not exactly the same, but you've got a great helicopter view of people that are entrepreneurs, people that have got an idea yeah. that come in. Um, for our listeners there, is there any learnings that you took away 
that you saw, I mean, they weren't setting up, I presume no one was doing a real estate business um, or in real estate. Funnily enough, there were a couple of connected to the real estate industry, definitely was one particular technology one. Um, Look, there's lessons in everything, and and that's one of the things I say to people. There's inspiration, lessons, education and mentoring all around you if you've got your antenna up. What did I learn about what good pitches looked like and what others didn't? One is it was all about the people. At the end of the day, there was this vast array of businesses, everything from high-tech technology right down to sort of basic tomato sauce type food products. And the common denominator and the thing that separated everyone, of course, was the people. Some of the entrepreneurs were absolutely brilliant. Not only were they you know, good at presenting and communicating their pitch, they were credible, they were focused, they knew their numbers. And the opposite, of course, that some people that didn't even get a look in, they were embellishing everything, they were exaggerating, and then you'd drill into their numbers and you'd find a chink and you'd find out, no, they weren't really telling the truth. I mean, there was one guy, and I won't go into too much detail on it, but he he had a business, he stepped up, and I think in hindsight it's probably a pretty good business. But he basically stepped up and he said, I'm the best at what I do in Australia, I'm the biggest and fastest growing, and after my first 12 months I'm highly profitable. Two big claims, I'm the best in Australia, and after a year I'm highly profitable, so I was interested in that, and I was the first um, shark to uh, investor to uh, ask questions. And I said to him, can you tell me about... You know, tell me about this. Why are you got this idea that you're the biggest and fastest growing in Australia? And he said, "Well, I just think we are." And I said, "So you have no facts to back that up?" And he said, "No, I just believe it's the case." So automatically, in my eyes, and I think most of the other, after one question, he was gone because there's trust. And yeah. you know, when when you're pitching to a vendor, trust is critical. Yeah. And then the other one, I said, "So tell me about how, you know that's a phenomenal result to get profitable year one, significantly profitable." And he basically, and I said, so what was your revenue? And he said revenue was about a quarter of a million dollars. I said, okay, and, and what, were your, what was your profit? And he said 200000 And I said, so you ran a business on $50,000? I mean, that wouldn't rent a serviced office in most capital cities. And I said, what about your wages bill? He said, oh, we didn't pay ourselves. And I said, well, hang on a sec. You can't honestly hand on heart say we're highly profitable, but we didn't pay ourselves because that's misleading an investor reality if you'd have paid yourselves let's say you paid yourselves uh, 80,000 a year you'd actually lost money not made money john it sounds to me it's not just the concept the idea or the spreadsheet it's also the person that you were buying in the pitch and what you're saying is the minute you felt like you had a few doubts you'd actually drill down more because you may have been afraid that there was not trust in that conversation 100% in fact I'd go way down that road you're travelling a lot further and I'd say, it really, forget the business, forget the sector, forget the spreadsheet, it was all about the people. And in that instance, as I reflect on, on that guy's pitch and his business, it was in a great sector. I actually think it was probably a really good business in the making. But when you lose faith and confidence in the person driving that business about their ability to tell you the truth and know their business... Um, all of a sudden, nothing else matters because you're, you're second-questioning everything they say and do. Yeah. So he, he just blew it out. And it's a pity because I think it would have been a very investable business, and I'm sure he runs quite a good... But he, be it adrenaline, enthusiasm, and I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, I'll say they were the things that probably had him say those things. I don't think he was a mischievous or a liar. But unfortunately, and like a real estate agent, a lot of them, and we come back to that pricing, a lot of them, when they're pricing a home... 
they walk in, they pop on the rose-coloured glasses and they look at every single thing that they love and they're so enthusiastic at the listing, they add a bit of sugar and spice on top and that's when they kind of put their valuation uh, forward. Whereas actual fact, when the buyers come in, in a lot of ways, there's half that, but there's the other half is assessing all the issues and the problems they have to deal with and factor into their pricing. So all this guy had to do was tell the truth and say, look, we're not yet profitable, but I think we're on the road to profitability over the next three years here are our numbers. We think we're one of the fastest growing players in the market and we don't have any evidence to that, but certainly our rate of growth is X percent per month or per annum. And that would have been, all of a sudden, we'd have all been engaged. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes, you know, humility, just feet on the ground. And you can do that with enthusiasm. I mean, I'm all for enthusiasm. It's part of my sort of life mission and, and the way I sell and I coach and I manage and I recruit and whatever is because I am an enthusiastic person. But you've got to be enthusiastic and you've got to be credible. Yeah. The minute you step over the line and people, then they start discounting and trying factoring and then you're gone. So, And John, sometimes when people are honest and sincere and they show vulnerability, that vulnerability is attractive because what the person is saying is, I don't know all the answers and I'm taking off my pitch mask and I'm just being real. Um, that's a trust enabler, isn't it? Yeah, oh, so so is Tom. And I can't remember, I was listening to a podcast last week. As you know, I listen to them every day. And one of them was talking about authenticity and it said, you know, that's one of, in this day and age, that's one of the key differentiators because the world is lacking in authenticity. And as a consumer or as a buyer or as someone looking for a service, the minute you hear and feel and meet authenticity, yeah. you know it. Yeah. So that's why on the podcast, when we talk to, to our, our audience and our listeners, I just keep saying, you know, be authentic. Listen to our advice and, and like work out how it works for you. But don't try and become me or you or Troy. Yeah. You know, be the best you you can be in your own style. But you know, take on board some of the stuff we're saying. So if you are a bit flat or a bit negative, well, that's definitely a change in style. But if you're an enthusiastic sort of person, you hopefully just get a few tips. And um, so look, it was a great show, and we'll we'll find out in the next few weeks if it's rated well, um, and hopefully it will. Not. No John, are you uh, a natural? On TV work? I mean, you've done a fair bit. Uh, the Block, you've done a number of those, and you've done yeah. various other TV work. Is it natural? Do you find um, it's out of your comfort zone, or it feels effortless? Um, look, somewhere in between. I don't find... Effortless is kind of an interesting phrase, depending how, you, how literally you apply it. My view is a little bit of nerves around most things I do actually adds to my performance. And I take that back from even sporting days. I even knew that if I turned up to play a game of football and me or the collective team were overconfident and a bit complacent, we could get our, our butts kicked by people who are nowhere near as good as us. So the same in business, if you get too complacent. So a little bit of nervousness is good. I think having done so many auctions over the years, and auctions, as the auctioneers out there listening would know, and you know, and Troy knows, um, A, is a great buzz to do, and B, is it teaches you to kind of be afraid of nothing. When you can stand up there, especially on-site auctions, stand up on a Saturday afternoon with traffic and overhead planes and crowds and kids screaming and all sorts of things that are potential distraction and stay focused and engage the crowd and sell and connect and all that sort of good stuff, that's pretty amazing for all life skills. So I think because the auctioning and, and maybe the public speaking I've done over the years, it puts you in a good state. But we were nervous, especially first couple of shows that we taped. I mean, because you just you don't know how you're going to act with the other people. It's it's like a listing presentation. You're meeting people for the first time, both your fellow sharks. By the end of it, we became very comfortable, and the chemistry was really good. 
But uh, no, it was very, uh, very interesting. And uh, full days, John. It was morning. We were starting, so we got there at seven thirty in the morning, and they had hair and makeup until nine. Then we'd start filming at nine, and we went through till six thirty, with uh, forty-five to sixty minutes for lunch. And there was about ten to fifteen minutes between each pitch, so it was pretty full on. But it's like real estate. If you're doing what you love, I mean, it's like saying if I went to six listing presentations a day. Yes, it'd be exhausting, but also it's fun. Yeah. Like Troy, when you do you know ten or twelve auctions on a Saturday, I mean, gee, at one hand that is quite exhausting if you're intense and you're doing it well and they're they're good auctions, but you know by the same token, um, you know you get to the end of the day and what a pleasant exhaustion that feels like. Uh, Troy, you get nervous with auctions? Little bit, little bit, but like John, I kind of think that that takes you to the next level. A little bit of nervous energy can actually bring out an optimum performance, and I always find that. The, the crowd's just as nervous, so it's kind of you build on their energy or make them feel relaxed and approachable. Showing your authenticity, you know, being natural, being honest with them, I think people resonate with that and they you kind of bid more. So, Tom, I didn't see, I didn't read the paper, but you're telling me now Troy's got his head in the paper. What's yeah, going on? Yeah, well, look, you know, I mean... This is out of control. Well, John, it is getting out of control, and we'll, we'll touch on it very briefly. And I'm sorry, Troy, I was going to stay out of it, but it's actually come to the forefront. We spoke about this. We spoke about okay, it. Okay, <laughs> so I'm getting, I'm getting uh, numerous questions now that are coming in, and they do also, and they say, oh, and how can we forget about Troy? Troy, 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 Troy. In fact, sometimes when I'm looking for a keyword search to get a question, I actually put the words Troy in there now <laughs> on my iPhone on Spotlight where you're looking so for things. In the paper, what was that? Oh, he was in the paper, John, because um, it was the early part of the year with the auctions, and there was a great auction that took place in Epping that got an incredible result. And they decided, out of all the people that was at the auction, uh, not the buyers, not the sellers, not, not the, the house, agent. Agents put a, a month of hard work in. Hard work. Troy's turned up for seven minutes. Yeah, and he's, <laughs> he's jumped out of his fancy car. And yeah. he's washed out. Never had a vendor meeting himself. Never was at the listing presentation. Right. And Troy Malcolm, there he is. He's the shining light across the media on Sydney. Troy Malcolm's your man. But I got to say that auctioning is funny, isn't it? Between the three of us and all our listeners, as an auctioneer, that is one of the funny things that happen. Is you do turn up, and if you do have a good auction and a great result, all of a sudden you're the hero and you've done five minutes' work, which is, a, you know, it's, it's, it's hilarious. But uh, we'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> all righty. John, let's. Uh, when we walked in today, the first thing you said was, I'm going to get you guys the summary notes of a book I've just read, The One Thing by Gary Keller. Mm-hmm. And I had actually, uh, John, when I read a book, I don't actually read from start to finish. I seem to miss bits that don't interest me and then I keep moving. But I can't scan remember. it. Yeah, scan I'm, the it. Same. I'm the this, same. This book is gold. Now, um, so let's give people a bit of background. Gary is the principal of a company called Keller Williams, who now have 106,000 agents. They're the biggest and they are the fastest growing in America. Um, he started it, I think, maybe 20 years ago, 25 years ago, but it, it kind of appears to have come out of nothing the last seven or eight or ten years. And um, it's, it's pretty well across America and it's starting to get into an international market. It's got a couple of things that I've observed, just so people know. So it's Gary Keller, Keller Williams. If you want to Google, um, you'll, find, you'll, you'll find it's easy to find. And on YouTube, I'm sure there's a heap of stuff there. They are very focused on uh, training and development. I've never seen a company that's more committed to them on that. Two is they have a unique reward system. So if an agent, one of the 106,000 agents, recruits a friend of theirs and encourages them to come and work for Keller Williams, there's the ability for them to participate in some sort of a commission incentive down the track. So if I recruited you and you were a success, then I would actually benefit financially from your success down the track. Even after I retired, if you kept working, 
So there's there's kind of this residual. So not only in retention, but in retaining them, because you're getting a, a fee for their ongoing work. So yeah. if you're seeing them get off track, it's in your interest to actually do what you can to actually help them get back on track. Correct, correct. So I think it's it's quite an interesting uh, little model. And the other thing is culturally, they have a very strong culture. I've never seen, and I use the word to you in describing it because I've been to one of their events as religious, and it is actually borders on religious. They're quite a religious group. But... You know, and people that are familiar in Australia with the Hillsong Church, and you see it on television on Sundays, and maybe some of the members even attend it, some of our audience attend it. Um, there's this incredible um, passion for the brand, for the culture, and Keller Williams have that in a, in a business sense. So it's an interesting book, and I, I read a couple of Gary's earlier books, um, and this was just the one thing. And what I did was I just Googled, having read it like you, and took my own notes I, this morning. Very early at a coffee shop, something hit my mind about it. Can we go because Ricky Rushton's over there because Rick's a good yeah. friend of all of ours, and yeah. Rick just sent me an email. And at six a.m., I was tapped onto my emails and had a quick look. and And Rick talked. To, Rick just said, "I'm over at Keller Williams, and I'm going to go to their event there." So I just thought I'll Google it. And well, uh, then these notes came up. For, I don't know who this guy is, but gee, he took some good notes. Well, John, let's let's. We've got about uh, three or four minutes left, so we're going to recommend everyone. Uh, to get the book or download the book or go purchase it, The One Thing by Gary Keller. But, um, John, the secret of getting ahead is getting started. There's one that... Yeah, I've heard you say that a lot, Tom. I mean, so many times we overanalyze everything we think and we plan and all that, and I, I am a victim of doing this from time to time myself. It's just actually doing it because A is, you know, half the success is just taking the first step. B is you're never going to know whether it's any good or not until you actually put it into practice. Yeah. And the best feedback you get is when it is in practice rather than it's on your notebook or your journal as a, as a concept. So I think that's a really, really good one. The other, the other one that he talks about, this is one of his first notes, is um, extraordinary results are determined by how narrow you can make your focus, yeah. which reminds me of Tim Cook and Steve Jobs, late Steve Jobs of Apple. They talk about, you know, it's the things you say no to and focusing on a fewer amount of, of products or services that makes you great. And I think about, you know, uh, Sarah Hackett and I think about Pete Chauncey and I think about all the great agents that I know that focus on a, on a defined market and a defined price range potentially and they do particularly well. So just having that laser focus is, was a big message. In fact, that's the whole message of the book really. The one thing is you need to work out what's the one thing you need to be doing um, to really uh, build your business. John, he makes reference a fair bit to uh, not worrying too much about willpower and be focused more on habits because uh, inspiration gets you started, but your daily routine is what keeps you going. And what, what's that? Because you say a lot in conferences about is it willpower is overrated? Will, willpower is overrated because I think if... Uh, so John, explain that because I, lo I love that when you said it and I believe it. Okay, well, here's an example where in February, and I clearly remember when I went uh, to the gym in January, the first, the 2nd of January I went, um, there was a lot of people in the gym, John, um, and I'd say there was about 40 people. Normally, that in, in a particular time, there's about 15. Yeah. Um, we're in February now, and this morning, John, there would have been six people because what we know is that a lot of people are motivated and inspired on January 1st, and a lot of people are motivated and inspired when they leave a conference. Yeah. But what we know is that within three, four, five, six days, people return to their daily habits. They return to their patterns, what they're wired to do, the time they wake up, the behaviour that they have, their morning ritual. So this pumped uh, uh, 
Red Bull feeling that they had at the time of the conference. Or it doesn't last, does it? But doesn't. It, it, it's there to help you get started, and getting started is key. So then how, on a practical level, do you think, for the listeners, they can... Because if willpower doesn't last, then what is it that does last, and what is it that you can be doing to make sure that you keep going to the gym or you keep prospecting or whatever it is that you're trying to do? Well, I think, uh, John, based on research... First, we know everything is hard before it's easy. So mm-hmm. anyone that's going to think, okay, I've made the decision, we're going down this path, don't think that the next 7, 10, 14, 21, 30 days are going to be easy. Everything's hard before it's easy. The second thing is um, the power of habit and the research there shows that when you do something for between 20 to 40 days, it starts to become rewired and it starts to become normal and what we clearly know is this is the critical thing I think John never go two days with breaking a habit because when you go one day you go off track something happens you come back to it the next day so in that great book The Power of Habit I don't know who the author was but he keeps saying don't go two days with breaking the habit because more or less you're saying I'm signing off this idea yeah yeah and I think also Tom you talked on the negative side of this, you've talked about, I mean, I love the saying, I think you said, if you don't want to slip over, don't hang around in slippery spots. spots. So the, if that's one thing, so for example, if you're trying to drink less, you don't meet friends at the pub, yeah. as a really crude and obvious example. So turning that around, if you actually want to achieve more and build that habit, put in an environment Correct. that allows that. So, you know, Put what are your goals in front of you. Make sure you say to your assistant every single day, don't book me for meetings between uh, 8 and 9 a.m. because I'm going to be prospecting. Um, whatever it is, but create an envir- a physical environment and uh, a people environment around you that actually supports you to do those things. And, and even pre-commit to that. Um, yeah. you know, like, you know, buy the gym membership, buy the shoes, book the personal trainer, say to your buddy, look, let's go for the next 21 days together to the gym every day create uh, a network around you yeah. that actually allows you to, um, to do all those things. Yeah, probably, John, the best research ever done on the environment and the reference group is where they actually looked at heroin addicts and they yeah. looked at the success of the ones that got off heroin and they clearly found those that changed their environment and their environment meant the people that they lived with, Yeah. Um, what they did in the day. They took this... Daily pre- routine. Daily routine. Or, you know, I mean, it might sound funny or, or strange when you're talking about heroin addicts, but they probably, you know, got up, did a certain thing, didn't do other certain things. And if you can break that yeah. and, and create create something else. All righty. Uh, Troy, as resourceful as he is, has been able to tell us that The Power of Habit is written by Charles Duhigg. Great book. So we've had two book recommendations. D-U-H-I-D-O, okay. I'm, 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 as we finish off here, John, I'm totally perplexed. This guy here is extraordinary. He's an auctioneer. He's an audio producer. He's researcher. A mar- researcher, marketer. The one thing you've male got to model, do, Troy... Male model. Male model. You're the best-looking guy Plays out of the three Plays touch football for Australia. Troy, this is... How old are you? I mean, you must have lived 100 years to actually achieve all these things, but I'm just having a look here. The one thing that you don't do is your battery's on 16%. It's early morning, and I'd suggest that after the end of this podcast, you charge it up, because you're a busy man. Okay. All right, we'll look forward to next week. Thanks, Tom. Thank Thanks, you. Sorry. See you next week. See you, gang. Yeah.